Welcome, everybody, to episode 38 of the Beyond Red and Blue podcast. I'm your host, Bo Richards, and with me, as always, is my co-host, Dan Humphrey. How you doing, Dan? Doing well. Hope everybody else is doing well as well. Me too. Today, we have a we have our first returning guest, a very special guest, an almost bald guest, <laughs> Mr. Sean Carter. Hey, fellas. <laughs> Thanks for having me on. <laughs> <laughs> I say almost bald because you have a little bit more hair than I do. It's not much. It's not much, but <laughs> it's still it's still enough to be respectable. God, you guys are making me feel like a hippie. Yeah, yeah. shave. Yeah, Dan, you need to clean that shit up. That's right. <laughs> nah, Dan looks good. You look like a military buzz cut. <laughs> yeah, but it's like super long. I got to trim that up. It's terrible. We're just you're starting to get that. Remember in the '90s when people used to like push boys who would push the front part of their hair up. Like they'd spike it up. Oh, oh yeah. yeah, get the wave going. Yeah, that's what your puka shells. Yeah, as, as it turns out, I was alive in the '90s. I remember yeah. that very well. Yes, I. Uh, <laughs> I used to do that. That was really cool. Dude, I had frosted tips in the whole thing. So I did not do that. Though, but. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not sharing any of my old pictures with you guys, but all of this is coming out of jealousy because you still have a full head of hair. So. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. So we uh, decided to bring you on again, Sean, uh, A, because we enjoy talking with you, but B, because uh, Sean Danher did a podcast with Lex Fridman, and it was amazing and uh, mind-blowing. We thought it'd be really fun to pick your brain and just to kind of hear everyone else's thoughts on the four-hour podcast <laughs> that they <laughs> did. <laughs> Yeah, and you know, good. if the listeners are not up to speed on Lex Friedman, I know he's got some really good traction right now. But if you happen to not uh, listen to him yet, highly, highly recommend it. Um, Lex Friedman is a uh, a unique individual, super cool. Been on Rogan, I think that's how most people got uh, up to speed with him. But he's a jujitsu black belt. He's an AI scientist. He's now a successful podcaster, uh, and just a generally very interesting guy to listen to. So, he's also. Uh a teacher at MIT. That's right. Yes. He's, I believe he's my age. I think he's in his early thirties. Okay. He's, he's very young and successful and absurdly intelligent. Yep. And he's, uh, he's one of those, uh, polymaths, you know, he, he yeah. does like a, a wide breadth of things and he's very good at all of them. Um, we talks too much about love. He thinks that all you need is love to solve all the world's problems. <laughs> well, he, he, not... he romanticizes even like violence, though. He that's that's how much. Yeah, well, <laughs> as he says, he's like he's like I'm Russian. It's like that's what you do. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah. yeah I, I I don't necessarily. I, I think he's got some points, but I, I he he pushes the the niceness too much, in my opinion. But uh, um, his inter- interview with John Danaher was um, was absolutely fucking ridiculous. Mm-hmm. Yeah. easily within a top five podcast i've ever listened to possibly higher but really really good same yeah i could yeah. i could say top five for sure oh yeah um so what i wanted to start is i wanted to some general thoughts from you sean about the podcast what, what were just like some broad thoughts that popped into your mind like what was the first thing that you thought when you finished the podcast besides thank god this is over it's so long oh i i i wish it, there was more to be honest uh <laughs> i me too. I, yeah. I i mean it those were it was one of those conversations that i could have listened to for a long period of time uh came back to it multiple times 
and keep listening to wherever it was going to go. Um, just overall, from the start, I think that Lex was having a hard time trying to figure it out because, you know, I know that they've had dinner before out in Texas after the the uh, Who's Number One with Joe and everybody. Mm-hmm. I guess they all went out to dinner and they had this big, long talk. And um, I think that Lex was still trying to figure out how he's because he's still figuring out how to interview people also. And he was kind of giving him these either or type of propositions or questions to put him in a box so he could be like, okay, now we're going to go down this chain of, of different questions because Lex is overly prepared for everything. And he has mm-hmm. kind of his own uh, tree his branches of thought and where to go in different things. And from the very first question, it was like, you know, are you afraid of death or something? You know, it was something crazy. It was like, oh, man. It was like, I think that was right. intentional, and, just a little icebreaker. Yeah, and then, and then John immediately, like, just comes right back at him and goes, let's break that down into two parts, you know? And you know, I was like, yes, all right. All right, this is going to go somewhere really good. And the way that he did it, um, you know, that, that, that that's what he's good at. You know, he's a... Dan Hurd's a genius, like just he, flat out. He's just a genius, uh, and he applies just basic principles in how, in the framework, how to think, right? Um, yeah. So when he broke it down into the two questions of like, you know, you were dead before, you know, and you know, and am I afraid of it? You know, taking that extra leap—that's a whole nother thing. And so he answered everything in that manner. Um, I feel like each one of those questions that he was throwing out there and the conversation as it went on was a lot more free flowing. And it got really interesting because you got to hear about, you know, robots and cyborg Gordon Ryan's and fucking <laughs> that was so great. <laughs> <laughs> you know. And well, dude, I gotta, you know, credit to to Danner, of course, but typically like if you're on Rogan and they somebody brings up a topic. And you got to throw to young Jamie to look something up, but not with Danaher. You talk about, yeah. you know, the history of chess is like, oh, okay, let's take a minute to set the context for the listeners and go on for like 10 minutes explaining the history of chess versus computers yep. just to set the stage for this question and, and thoroughly covered. And as far as I can tell, very historically accurate, mm-hmm. uh, the dudes is walking Wikipedia. Yeah. It's yep. amazing. The impression I got is that that Lex was a little unsure, kind of like what you said, Sean, and maybe even a little nervous. And then once he, I think once he realized what kind of a level John Danner was on, he was able to meet him at that level of nerd. Oh yeah, and then and then you see you you see throughout the podcast like he kind of starts to calm down a bit and like like you said a little more free flowing and I, I think that just came from him understanding like okay like I can be esoteric and a little bit out there and he's he's not going to fall behind he's going to know exactly where I'm going and so I can have fun with this versus um, you know trying to force the conversation in, in in an area so that you can stay within the realm of what a person knows um, it actually kind of reminds me of like grappling with say like someone who's new and you're really only doing certain things. Uh, so you don't hurt them. They don't hurt themselves. 
you don't, you know, uh, they don't hurt you, whatever, versus rolling with someone new you've never met and they start to flow with you and you're like, oh, I can have fun a little bit and I can kind of open up and play and I'm not afraid to get hurt. And I trust that they're going to also do the movements that I do so that we can, you know, have fun together. It kind of reminded me a bit of that. Um, when you just kind of start, they kind of get into a groove and they're like, okay, we can, we can do this together and it's not going to be uh, stilted or awkward or I'm Lex and I'm going to say something and you're going to be like, wow, you're, you're a dork and I have no idea what you're talking about. <laughs> <laughs> it yeah. was, it was an intellectual flow roll. Yeah. 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 Right. Exactly. Exactly. One of my uh, favorite parts at the beginning because that was an interesting question. Are you afraid of death? Um, John said something very profound. And he talked about how mortality is what gives people meaning in life. And I've thought about that like over the years, but it's never something we've actually tackled on the podcast as of yet. We've talked about meaning itself and like how to identify meaning and to have an aim and partly that's for me, that's a big reason why I like jujitsu, because there's always an aim to be had in jujitsu. Like, even if it's as simple as don't die, um, there's always, you know, something to do in the game. And I thought that was very interesting that he tied that. He's, he basically was like, if you live forever, like, it'd probably be a pretty shitty existence because there's no there's no death. So, like, you can just put this off indefinitely. There's no actual meaning to doing anything. Yeah, for two centuries. maybe think of... Say that again for two centuries. I don't have to do this for a couple yeah. centuries. Yeah, yeah. And it, it made me realize, like, if you think about all the immortal characters there are in stories, they're all pieces of shit. <laughs> I mean, like the the, the 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 quintessential one in classical literature is Dorian Gray, of course, um, the portrait of Dorian Gray, and he's got that the painting that takes in all of his sins so that he can remain young and beautiful, but he does all this, these fucked up things because he's got nothing else to do. Um, the other one I thought of recently is Thor. That's where Thor's... I was going. Say that again. That's where I was going. I'm thinking about that beer belly and yeah. everything else after. Yeah, right. Exactly. <laughs> well, so there's that. And then there's like the, in the first Thor movie when he, he's kind of an asshole and needs to grow up and then he like falls in love with a mortal woman. And that's sort of what gives him meaning is that mortality and love. Um, and so I thought that was, I was like, oh, I was wondering if we were actually even going to talk about jujitsu when I heard the podcast start like that. I was like, oh, damn, like this is going to get really philosophical, you know? Like, he knows his shit. He almost, I think he actually almost or has his PhD. And so, um, but yeah, what were your thoughts, Dan? I think what stood out to me the most, among many things, but the, the one golden takeaway was his thoughts on heuristics. Mm. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and for me, it really, it's, uh, it distilled and articulated something I've been trying to figure out for ever, basically. Um, and, ju- and we've talked about this before of just, you know, finding the most important principles and working towards those versus trying to memorize a 57 move technique. And if you mess up move 13, you don't know where you're at or anything like that. Um, but the way he broke it down, and it, particularly with the um, the, the comparison with uh, machine learning, um, it, I just I found that very encouraging on you know where I'm trying to to point my jujitsu path. Particularly because I don't have uh, you know it's not full time for me. I'm just a hobby level player, so I really do need to pick what things I want to train and get good at because I'm not going to be able to learn everything. Um, that was like I said, very encouraging. To, to hear him explain that so well um, 
and uh, yeah, just the, the most effective things that you can focus on to get better as fast as you can uh, are the heuristics. Mm-hmm. It's fantastic. Yeah. I think if, if one were to only take away that from the podcast, it's worth the three hours, you know? Um, Absolutely. Although there was, there was a ton of other great stuff. I mean, the whole thing was really solid. It, but just, just to give an example, if you haven't watched it yet, and, you know, one of the examples they threw out, which I do disagree with, but he said, as a beginner, as like a disclaimer, right? He said, don't turn your back, Right. And that cuts mm-hmm. out like all, all these different attacks, right? Which which is great. But I'm glad you said as a beginner. But um, but that that that's one thing. So that they don't take your back. They don't. They aren't putting you into a place where you're getting strangled. You know, you're in a place where you're just trying to get back to to guard to a safe place, basically. But it cuts out all these other attacks and all these other angles where you can just end up really deep in the shit. Um, yep. You know, and he he outlined it very, very well compared to learning everything from everywhere in sporadic kind of right. moves basically. Is and it's kind of like, it's, it's like 80, 20, right? If, if you just, you know, the, the 20% of the things that you focus on, are give you 80% of the results. Um, if you take those heuristics or rules of thumb, uh, you know, say, don't give up your back. Um, it's not necessarily a hundred percent true all the time, but like you said, for beginners, even if it wasn't for beginners, if you just stuck to that, uh, it wouldn't hurt you. You may not be able to maximize what you can do with jujitsu, but if you had to stick with that, it's not going to kill your game, you know? So of course you can expand beyond that and know when to give up your back and, and play with it. But if all you did was make sure and stick to that, just don't give up your back. Um, you'd be okay. A lot of people have made their game around that. I mean, that's that's that old school mentality, right? Yeah. yeah. Just can't choke me if you don't have my back. It's like, yeah. Well, I mean, if I get good at, <laughs> if I get good at giving people my back, then you can't choke me when you have my back. So that right, I, you know. <laughs> <laughs> then we yeah. get all the preach it. Yeah, just yeah, yeah. <laughs> little little side tangent, right? I mean, because without giving this any explanation, I I feel like. Everybody's like, oh, well, why, why would you give up your back then? So the, the basic idea is, is that if, if you don't give up your back at all, then you're forced to be in a position where you're only going back to guard position and more than likely you're going to still be pinned. So you will still end up on the ground on bottom. If you do give up your back, you are now fighting with your hands forward and you're getting more into wrestling. So, yeah. so that's the, that's the big difference between the two. And, uh, I'm a firm believer in having both, but there is something to be said about day one person coming in that I, I think that, I think that that's still true. Yeah. Don't give up your back. Well, you want small, small bits and pieces, right? One of the things I've been doing with the kids that I didn't used to do, and I blame Preet for this, but, um, Brick Mickelson, uh, but is I'll explain like, here's a good rule of thumb. It's generally, you know, maybe you don't want to give your back until you learn how to protect it. And then, so don't roll. And then I'll show you how to do it. Or maybe with this position, you don't necessarily want to do this because it can be problems. I'll show you in a, in a minute. So I'm not closing them off to, 
never do this, otherwise you'll die. It's more of, there are times to do this. This isn't what I'm gonna teach you right now. I will have to teach this to you later first, master this one small thing. And then if you you know get good enough, or if you come enough and you have mastered this sort of thing, then I can teach you other things. I've been, I've been starting to show um, one of our green belts that concept of like, hey, it's okay to turn your back. Like, you just need to understand what's going to happen when you do and, you know, solve those problems. Like, it's just a new set of problems to solve, right? You're going to get choked a lot. I have a funny story. This is another slight tangent, but I have a funny story. So, um, Jean, you'll know the two green belts. They're sisters. Yeah. And the older <clears throat> one, she just, uh, she just got her blue belt. And um, she was in Monday, and we were grappling. And uh, um, I don't know. She'd been helping me teach youth classes, but I didn't have a chance to grapple with her yet. And uh, so I was like, let's grapple before you go. And so we were grappling. And I was just, you know, practicing some preach shit. She ended up getting behind me, and I was like, keeping my elbows in tight and I forgot to boxing shoulder as I like was turning into her and she just slapped her hand around and forearmed me in the mouth so hard <laughs> that it knocked my head back and then she choked me <laughs> this little 16 year old just fall and clocked me in the mouth because she saw my neck and she was like I'm choking this motherfucker <laughs> she just reflex. Like, yeah, she just like slapped on her rear naked, like over my face. But it, it took me by such surprise because I, I wasn't protecting that side with my shoulder that she had access. To. And I was like, I learned a lesson today. <laughs> I learned two lessons. Never willingly give my neck to a 16 year old who wants to choke. <laughs> and always, you know, at least turn or like have that shoulder up so that it's a little bit more difficult so that you don't get forearmed in the face. My lip was numb for like an hour. Oh, jeez. <laughs> Those are good lessons, man. It was it was crazy. And I asked the uh, the rest of the guys there. I was like, so I decided to give Megan my back to see what would happen. And I'm never doing that again. And they're like, yeah, we don't give her anything. What are you thinking? Like, she just like was just like rolling all over them and like squirming <laughs> out of their positions and then getting their backs and choking the shit out of them. And I was like, yeah, yeah that's right. <laughs> well, you know, that kind of that segues nicely into uh, a different section of the Lex podcast where they were talking about, uh, particularly Gary Tonin, who will intentionally get into really bad positions, and with Tonin, like really, really, really bad positions, um, just to learn to work out of them. But the important thing is that he's not afraid to get tapped, you know? Yep. So you can have a blue belt tap Gary Tonin, which sounds insane, that should never happen. But no, it's it's that's what happens when you actually set your ego aside. You're willing to take those risks to go as far as you can and see how far you can defend yourself, which ultimately builds that defensive confidence of you could be in the worst position like, oh, I've gotten out of this 100 times before. No big deal. Um, I thought that was really cool as well, just to see someone as as high level and well known as, you know, say, Gary Tonin, um, who's perfectly willing to put himself in terrible positions and if it doesn't work out he has to tap no big deal you know slap up and do it again absolutely i mean the 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 training room is for training purposes i mean you you do have to go to battle sometimes but when he was talking about skill acquisition you know that's what it's actually there for and if you aren't yep. using it for that purpose then it's useless for you you know and that was a big part of it and how people train or quote unquote drill you know those types of things and why 
the higher belts, you know, they they'll skip warm ups. Purple belts, especially, I'm guilty, totally guilty, <laughs> you know, uh, or you know, skip practice altogether just to roll. And you know, there's, you know, I can name a, a bunch of upper belts that do that, you know. Oh yeah, I've been yeah, I've been totally guilty, absolutely. And uh, I have not been guilty of this. Shame on both <laughs> of you. <laughs> Says the guy who was employed by said gym. Mm, yeah. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> well, I, I actually also like company doing man. the warmups. I didn't mind it. Um, I have since changed the warmups that I, whenever I'm in the class. Uh, Hawaiian Chris actually has me run his warmups for him because even though he is a coach, he's still a purple belt who hates doing warmups. So he won't even do his own warmups. <laughs> <laughs> so he's like, Bo, you do the warmups. And then I make everyone do uh, animal runs, which is essentially where you mimic the movements that animals do. <laughs> Nice. There's a way to work the body. Just to, um, I'm trying to adopt what, what Preet suggests, which is just to like get your body functional, just to like get a little bit of movement for five minutes. Yeah. And so I found that um, in terms of moving the full body, mimicking like bears and crabs and snakes and cheetahs and shit like that, frogs is a good way to uh, utilize a lot of the body parts simultaneously and get them warmed up. And then I'll do a few other things if. Um, I feel unnecessary to, if we're working on something, I might do, you know, squats or bridges and things like that. But, uh, I try and keep it under five minutes so that, um, we can move on. Um, I had a question for you, Sean, cause you were talking about skill acquisition. Um, and I actually like to tap all, like, I actually like to put myself in, in bad positions intentionally so that I can figure it out. Um, but what I'm curious about with skill acquisition and drilling is, uh, John Danner was very critical about the old school form, like the old, the, the current way, I suppose, of drilling where you drill three times and then I drill three and then you three and then me, and the numbers part of it. And he suggested doing things until you have a fundamental grasp of how the move works with resistance. Um, so what I'm wondering is that I can wrap my, my head around that. I actually prefer to drill that way and I've been trying to do that for quite some time. I haven't fully figured out what the best way to do that is with kids. And I'm curious what your thoughts are on that. Um, it depends on what the goal is, but make it a game. That's the, that's the yeah. easiest, that's the easiest way. Like for instance, I do the same thing with adults. Like I've, I've ran classes where I have a bunch of traditional, uh, jujitsu type of players that like to shrimp back to guard or however you get back to guard. Right. Um, I take about maybe five minutes to show the basic idea of what you're trying to do and the three goals that you have in mind, but you're not allowed to go back to guard. You have to turn away and actually get your shoulder to their hip so that you have the option now of either going for like a, a single, a double pull guard, get an underhook, do whatever you want to do from there. But your goal is to basically turn away, have an athletic posture, and basically spear your shoulder into their hip. So now you have a, a lot of options, right? And that's a game. So as yeah. so as people, like at the start, you kind of have to let them do their own thing and kind of be a dummy partner, <clears throat> right, at the very beginning if it's completely new, even if it's kids or adults, right? Because it's, yeah. it's unfamiliar. They don't really know how to move their body correctly yet. 
but once they get the when they get the machinery down of like bam 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 and then it starts becoming even more circular instead of just like these straight lines that's when you as a looking over people you could say okay this group you're ready to start upping the intensity you're ready to start upping the intensity but but as somebody who's a coach that's watching the room you want to do that but at the same time you want feedback from the partner every so many uh repetitions you don't want critiquing on every single one it's just like yeah. every every so often say something if if something keeps coming up like you aren't quite getting there or you're barely touching me like i actually want you to make contact with your shoulder to my hip so it actually it actually moves me like in taekwondo how they actually have like oh you tap me versus like you actually struck me and it moved me right points yeah right that's that's what you're looking for right um and i think that 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 would be one form of taking this concept of what we're talking about never give up your back that's how i've taught it so i mean i'm sure that there's like a ton of different ways but that's how i've taught it is as a game okay. and then now right. to add to that is is that that would be like probably three quarters of the class would be that all right so you'll see everybody start getting like eh, i'm like a little bit bored or whatever right and they want to free roll a little bit more that's when you give them the choice and they can play back and forth so they can go guard turn away back to guard 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 turn away turn away turn away guard whatever right mm -hmm. so then it actually becomes this really fun game where nobody knows what what it, it's tagged now you see what i'm saying yeah so that's right, right. so so when they start reaching that point that's that's how i ran it in the past okay i see yeah that's what i've been trying to implement some of the things it's difficult like showing the mechanics of how to break an arm i'm trying i've been, actually been struggling with how to turn that into a game and the best i've come up thus far is just showing different ways to maneuver your arm out of an armbar position so whether it's like moving a leg or sitting up or hitchhiking or trying to pull the elbow to the ground and just having those different reactions and then giving at the end of class, say the last five minutes, the person on bottom is going to utilize all of those reactions however they want. And then it's a battle of controlling the arm and then breaking. Um, my concern is, is, uh, is trying to figure out exactly like when the kid understands what it is they're doing. Like it's difficult, it's easier for me to see that when I'm showing it to like a 35 year old than it is to like a seven year old. It's like, do they really understand how to break an elbow? Or are they just having fun? And so part of me is like, should I just let them have fun for a while and then like in a month or two, like revisit this and be like, okay, like let's try and tighten the detail or do I just like, does that make sense? Because with adults, I can be like, okay, well, like this clearly feels off. Do it to me like you're doing it wrong. Here's the things you need to fix. And even if they don't know jujitsu at all, they can at least, oh, I know how to activate this muscle or this leg, or I know how to move my body this way. Like they're more aware of how their body works. Um, with kids, it's tough with that when I'm like, hey, move your hip this way. They'll move the opposite way or they'll like stand up. And it's like, that's not what I said to do. <laughs> so so the, the thing is, is when, when you're talking about controls, um, it's very easy to work conceptually. It's very easy to do that right um in a heuristic way okay mm -hmm. it's very easy to do that 
right? You you hide your hide your armpits, right? And basically, don't give them anything. Don't give them shit, you know. Yeah. And move accordingly, right? Uh, with braking mechanics, it's the complete opposite. You have to have a very deep knowledge of braking and strangling mechanics. So. So like breaking an arm, <clears throat> there's a lot of different ways that you can do it. And when people don't know how to break an arm, you see kind of this bullshit defense for for uh, defending an arm an arm bar. Now I love Preet, okay, love him. I I love everything about how he teaches and everything, but his arm bar escape is absolute bullshit because anybody with good braking mechanics is going to put their foot on their ribs and they're just going to break it right there. And it's a very hard and violent break. Um, it's mm -hmm. very easy to do and it's going to come on so fast. I mean, it's, it's night and day. Some people will say, okay, well, you know, uh, I'm going to internally rotate my shoulder. So now you can't pull my hand towards the South hip well, guess what? Now you're going to, your shoulder is internally rotated, which means that you're much weaker uh, of a position. And now you can just bring it over the, the north leg instead. Yeah. Right. And it also kills the hitchhiker escape as well. Right. So this, you have to know braking mechanics. It, it, there's no shortcuts in that. You actually have to know them. So in, in drilling and making it a game, you have to have a very firm belief that everybody in there knows what the breaking point of the arm is, because <clears throat> if anybody's in there, that's like, I'm just waiting for the person to tap and I hope that they do. And if they do, I win. It shouldn't be like that. It's if, okay, yeah. if Bo, if you're breaking my arm, it's up to you to know when that point is, you should know that. Right. Um, yeah. if, if you have good breaking mechanics, right. So, and, and now it's up to you as a good training partner. If we're just drilling, like, Hey, this guy doesn't know, like he's done, like, just let go. Right. So that's, that's where it comes down to you teaching proper breaking mechanics or strangling mechanics, right. And using like rotational finishes, closing off your elbows, you know, all these different things. Uh, I could go on forever about this cause I love this stuff. Um, but to answer your question is, is that if you're looking to have breaking mechanics and then have it as a game, instead of just like, I have a semi arm bar kind of bent and we're working out of it. It's, it, it's not a very fun game mm -hmm. because the person who has good breaking mechanics is just going to get them every single time. They don't have a clasp of their hands together. They don't have anything. All they have is a turn of a wrist and their ability to shoot their shoulder higher. That's all that they yeah. have or shoot yeah. it lower. That, that, that's all that they have, right? Where everybody else that is, we're talking about just straight up arm bars here. You know, they're, they have every tool at their hands to their hands, their legs, everything to break them in numerous ways and guide them to the break that they want. All right, so it's an un it's a completely unfair game. So, but if their hands are locked, now you can start playing more games. Yeah. So, which I so I agree with that. The issue that I that I run into is that I'm dealing with eight year olds who 
don't understand any of this. So it's like it, it's all <clears throat> bad. They're all bad at it, and it's all like. So my my question then would be, you have to develop those breaking mechanics at some point. Is that too young? No, no. Or so I actually so so real fast. Um, I sat. I I asked Hannah Sharp this question. All right, Hannah Sharp is she's a bad mamma jamma. All right, she's if you haven't heard about her yet, look her up. All right, but uh, I sat Hannah Sharp down after the seminar that she had with us on bent arm bars, and I was like, "Look, um, I have no problem teaching adults. Like, I I think it's a lot of fun. I'm learning more about it, but I have no idea how to teach kids." And she was like, "You you treat them like adults." And if they can't yeah. deal with it, they sit out, let them cry. And I was just like, man, <laughs> I was like, I was like, I, okay, all right, perfect. She's like, if they can't follow along, you treat them as if they can't follow along. And socially it'll break them. Yeah. You know, so fall in line. You know, it was very cold, but I was just like. <laughs> I, Suck it up, I, little Johnny. Yeah, I was like, <laughs> you know, I can get behind this. So. Yeah, that's yeah no i actually can too i um i mean i i I probably i smile more when i teach the kids classes than i probably do in normal life but um because the kids are fun but i i I try and do that same thing i might give them a little bit more leeway but very little um yeah it's interesting with the breaking mechanics because i i was noticing that the other day when i was teaching them some of the kids were actually having a blast like on the bottom and the top, they were like trying to escape. And the person on top was just holding the arm and was like learning how to bridge into the arm, like just doing all the different thing. They were just trying new stuff. I was like, just do stuff and then tap when you don't like it. And, um, but I was trying to like, really, as I was think- watching them all do this and I was thinking about it, I was like, a lot of this stuff is unrealistic. Like it's stuff I wouldn't do. I'm like, okay, well, at what point do I, how can I show them like, okay, like a lot of this stuff, like you're not going to be able to do this as soon as it's going to stop. Right. Or how do I teach a proper defense or those kinds of things with, um, without it going over their heads, you know? Um, I, I think you should, I think you should give them more credit, man. Like, uh, you know, if, if, uh, they have to bridge into an arm to, to break it or to even get a tap, like they don't have good braking mechanics. You should be able to spot that across the room. Well, yeah. Right. They shouldn't even be oh, able yeah. to lay down. Like, they, you know, <laughs> and they should go to like a, like a 45 degree angle and that kid better be tapping, you know, if they've got good no, braking. Right. <laughs> no, no, very, very true. And so like, that's actually one of the things that I did notice is that a lot of the kids, they would like, they'd be moving the arm from the North to the South leg and moving it across the hip, what have you, and trying to figure out like, how to bend it. And some people would have like fairly bendy elbows and like, they're trying to make things work. And then eventually just like bridge. And I'm like, okay, like I want to solve this issue. Some of them were just too small compared to their partner. Like they didn't really have a choice. Like they, they had to do some, they had to be able to generate some kind of leverage. And I'm like, okay, like I noticed like nine things that I need to solve. And it's like, well, fuck, which one do I like, <laughs> like, which one do I start with? There's so many problems, you know, cause it, it's a complicated issue. But the, the the cool thing is 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 that it sounds like from the way that you're describing your classes that they're all interested. So if they're all interested, yeah. you can come back to it and you can address those different things in an order that that makes sense to you and to the rest of them. You know, if the if the interest is there, man, your job's gonna be cake. Okay, good. Yeah, Th- that's really my worry. Is like I, I want to try and 
teach these kinds of things, but a lot of it is is all new stuff I've been thinking about throughout Corona. That's it. I haven't like been able to implement it yet. And so like I'm implementing it on the fly with a bunch of people. And like the only the only two that really seem to understand it are like the green and the blue belt that help me teach. Cause I I've been showing it to them in piecemeal and they they've been doing they understand because they've been doing it for jujitsu for like 10 years. Um, or however long they've been doing it for. But all, all the rest of the kids, it's like I'm trying to like gauge it. They seem to be having fun, but I'm like, do you really understand anything I'm talking about? And if you don't, that's fine. Like, I don't expect them to pick it up immediately. But, um, you know, my worry is that, like, I'll either throw too much at them, like, too many things at once. Like, here's seven things, figure it out. Or I'll make it so difficult to understand with one thing that they're just not, they're going to be bored, you know? I mean, if they they understand what you're trying to get across and they're having a fun time with it, and they're able to play a game, some type of back and forth yeah. game with with it. Um, I I think that that's all. Man, I think that's I'll a win. Yeah, I think that's a win, man. You know, especially because now you got kids that are excited about class. They want to come. They want to not just get with their favorite training partner, their buddy, and you know, just kind of hang out and talk. They actually want to do jujitsu. That's that's cool. Yeah. So. So then my my goal at that point would be to notice the things that they're making mistakes on. And if I can't immediately correct those, because sometimes it's, you can only throw so much at a kid, make notes of those so that I can revisit those kinds of things and say, last time this is some problems we ran into, we need to correct these problems. Yeah, if you're able to, to look at it as a whole and like only one kid got it, well that, I mean, and the other nine didn't, I don't know how many kids you got in the class, but... But I mean, if there's, you know, so many that didn't, only one kid got it, you know, then you're asking that kid for help, yeah. right? He's got eyes on the room with you now, or she does, or, you know, mm-hmm. so I don't know. What are your thoughts, Dan? You've been so quiet. I think it all makes sense. First of all, um, I have essentially no experience working with and or teaching children. <laughs> so part of me is just like, oh shit, that just sounds so hard. Um, my solution is teach adults, but, uh, <laughs> That's a good one. I, I agree with you, uh, along those lines. I mean, and like you said, you know, give kids more credit than it may seem like that they deserve at first. Um, you know, kids are little sponges. They're probably picking up on more than they can articulate or even demonstrate in yeah. the moment. Like they'll go home and sleep on it and then stuff will click in. I know that and, to be the case. So, yeah. Yeah. And, you know, also, like you were saying, you don't have to figure it all out in one class, you know. So if the majority of kids pick up one important concept in the class, that's a win. They just keep coming back to it until all of the important concepts are grasped by the majority of the class. And then you either, you know, take it to the next level or go for a different technique or or what mm-hmm. have you. But just thinking big picture, um, as long as they're picking up on something and they keep showing up, they'll be fine. I mean, they're, they're still figuring out, you know, goofy ass new growing bodies. So no, very, yeah, very true. A little slack in that sense. Yeah. It's like I said, it's, it's just some things I've been thinking about this for so long now and I finally able to implement and I have all these ideas (laughs) and I'm like, there's 55 ideas from guard, but do I even want to start with close guard? Maybe I should start with open, like an open guard instead. Like Robert Necky says, you should do butterfly or, you know, uh, a half guard or something and not do open. Close guard. It's like, what should I do there? 
How do I show them how to do takedowns? That's really important. Here's 35 things. Like, here's how an armbar breaks. They should learn an armbar, right? Like, they should learn how to choke. What if they have a bully? And I'm like, fuck, like, every day. It's like one, and I don't want to do like every day is one new thing. I'd rather do like a couple of days of one thing and then move on so they don't get bored, but they're learning enough things to sort of be able to come back and remember. And um, so that's going to be a test in and of itself is to test how well they can recall. And if I'm doing a good enough job of explaining things so they can recall it. Um, I think it's also a good, good uh, time to implement some heuristics in that, you know, for the kids. Uh, yeah. Just don't give up your back. You, you can give up your back. We'll talk about that when you're a blue belt, but for now, you're just yeah. not going to give up your back and then work on more fundamental stuff that will uh, give them some tools to survive when they are rolling so they can have some success and, and have fun with it um, and also have, you know, a, a foundation of self-defense if they do run into a bully, you know, um, rather than teaching spider guard, give them a solid closed guard. I think that'll serve them better on the playground type of thing. Uh, and then as they advance, then you can get into the more uh, interesting stuff. Yeah. I was actually thinking about um, Rob Bernacki mentions that he he only teaches the rear naked choke to white belts in his school. Makes sense. He doesn't start. Yeah. And uh, and then, you know, John Danher and his podcast with podcast with Lex, he's like, I basically teach six submissions. Mm-hmm. And it's not very many. And, you know, he's got variations of them, but just six submissions. And I was like. I'd never really thought about the submissions that we taught to the kids. I was kind of always taught kind of what Brian was taught and which is kind of what Pedro was taught. And then I started before quarantine teaching things a little bit differently, but part of me really wants to be like, okay, like I've shown an arm bar. So we've got an arm bar now. I'd like to show like the rear naked and maybe the straight choke, the short choke, something like that. And then just, that's just what you're going to learn until you're like it you've been doing jujitsu for like three years and then maybe we'll see if you can handle something else, you know, like let's give you a good long time before you start to focus on any of those other things to keep it simple. So, uh, shout out to Brian real fast. Cause that's the one thing that I didn't talk about on the podcast last time, which I totally brain farted. I didn't bring up him. Uh, Brian, uh, the way that he taught, I was actually very fortunate to run into Brian and I've told him this, that I don't think I would have lasted in this game because I was just too small and with how aggressive people were back then and how bad the game was played typically with like blue belts or whatever. And everybody was bigger than me. You know, if I didn't, if I didn't find Brian, I would have been fucked, you know? Mm -hmm. And so one of the things that, Brian did that. I don't know if he notices that he did or not, but in the beginner class and I, from the beginning, I went to both classes, beginner and advanced class, and then stayed for rolling. I always did. But in the beginner class, uh, he focuses for, and we're speaking just in guards, uh, in guards, he would, he would go with outside control type of guards. Right. Um, so just like closed guard and stuff like that. Um, and then for the advanced class, because he's a Marcelo Garcia fan so, so much, he spent all this time with me on inside position. So from a very, very, uh, early start, uh, I had both inside and outside position, at least, a, a an okay understanding of things. I mean, it's not to the mm-hmm. point 
now with especially how important inside position is, which is a, a pushing position because you're using, you know, your shins and a pulling is with your calves. So that's outside position. But uh, his the way that he taught allowed me to, to progress in a way that um, I don't think I would have found anywhere else. And he gave me the freedom to do whatever I wanted and let my game go wherever I wanted it to. So, um, I mean, I, I owe so much to that guy. So, so yeah. I would, I want to second that. Yeah. I want to second that because he, he basically is like, figure yourself out. <laughs> it's like, I've shown you <laughs> a good amount and I'll answer all the questions you have, but you do your thing. Teach how you want to teach, learn what you want to learn. And if I can help, I will. Otherwise, talk to Sean. Uh, he, and you know what? He he always he always I I had a talk with him early on because I got kicked out of a gym for going to his gym, right? So so I I had this talk with him, and I was like, dude, I kind of want to like train at other places. You know, you okay with that? And this was like me as a white belt, right? And uh, he's like, no, please go train at other places learn something, bring it back and teach us. And I was just like, yeah, I was like, man, this is so great. Why isn't everybody like this? You know, <laughs> I, was like, yeah. I was like, this was like the well, easiest dude. conversation. I was like, I was sweating over this and like stressing for like days, <laughs> you know, and it was like the easiest thing with Brian, you know? So. Yeah, no, I'm, I'm excited. He's, he actually has his first class in, uh, uh, Wednesday tonight. Um, so anyone who's listening, it's actually going to be uh, Wednesday night, but uh, uh, he's finally got fully vaccinated and we'll be back teaching. Um, nice. That's awesome. I got so, my shot uh, yesterday, so I'll be in shortly. Nice. Yeah. Um, well, you know, um, I, I, along those lines, I'd like to give a little uh, shout out as well, just in terms of Brian's teaching style, uh, because that openness works really well for me as well. Uh, I, I, yeah, I question a lot. I, I struggle with do it this way because I told you to do it this way type of teaching. Um, and I was like, oh, what about this? What about that? Well, I tried this and I've come across instructors that don't really enjoy that kind of thing. They'd rather just everybody do what they say and let them teach the class. Uh, yeah. But he's always been super open to that. You're like, yeah, give it a shot or no, it's not going to work because of this. Like, oh, okay, great. So he allows my, my mind to kind of, you know, seek out all these different, uh, different options and without putting pressure on me just to shut up and do what I was told. Uh, yeah. And that, for me, I learn a lot faster that way. Same. And I know that I it, can, it can be taken as um, almost disrespectful to the teacher. That's certainly not my intent. It's just like more my learning style. Um, and, I, and I'm never trying to be disrespectful, but with something like jujitsu that, that does mean a whole lot to me, um, I have a real hard time, like, turning my brain down so I can be, um, you know, civil or, you know, socially responsible or whatever versus, uh, let my brain kick up to a hundred percent and learn the way that's best for me and explore the options and, and all that stuff. Um, so yeah, a lot of appreciation to Brian for that. Just basically no, just very, keeping very it chill true. and letting us all learn how we learn best. Oh yeah. I remember one time, uh, he was showing, like a way to do an arm bar from Mount. And I've been starting to explore other ways of training, like different types of training and like 
I like to question things always. And so I, I kind of always question stuff, but I did it way less as a white belt because everything was just so new. I had like no idea what was going on. And so I'm like second or third stripe with my blue belt or something. And I'm like, okay, I'm starting to figure things out and I'm questioning stuff. And he shows this arm, arm bar from Mount. And I remember thinking like, this is not how I would do an arm bar. It's like, this just, this just, there's something about this just seems very wrong to me. Um, and so I did it a little bit and then I was working around. And then like a few weeks later, he showed a completely different way to do that arm bar for Mount. And I'd never seen him do it before. And I was like, why did you show it this way? But you showed it this one way a couple weeks ago. And he's like, I show it like five ways so that there's different details from each arm bar that you can pick up so that when you're doing an arm bar, you can apply all of those details to the arm bar in the way that works best for you. And I was like, fucking blew my mind. Because like, I'll, I'll give you an example. And anyone who does jiu-jitsu is listening can understand this. Um, one of the arm bars that he shows, and he's always shown this, and I, this is the arm bar that he actually showed that I questioned it, and I was like, this isn't going to fucking work. If someone pushes up on the chest, which I've actually had people do while rolling, and they weren't white belts. Like, I, I've had people do it. Trino's done it to me as a joke. And it, <laughs> if you don't know it's coming, it actually does work. Like, he, I, I actually, actually, like, bench pressed me out of mount because it shocked me. And I, like, I love doing that to him. people. <laughs> So, but that's not supposed to work. Yeah. It's like, so there's that to be said for it, but you push up on them and then you hop up, you like you're on your knees and and mount, and then you jump up to your feet in a squatted position. And then you drop one knee down by the head. And then you like flare out like a butterfly stretch the other knee. And that's the arm bar. And there's like all this space under you, all this shit. And I'm like, that's dumb. Like there's that's no. And then he showed another arm bar that was much more smooth. And it was like one mo- one mo- motion. It was like basically what Hickson shows. It's just like he is like lean and go. You just like throw a leg and get an arm bar. Post with the and hand. Like, These are drastically different, like old school style. And he's like, he's, what I'm trying to do is get people to understand where to put their bodies. Like in, no one's going to do the jump up into like a squat arm bar. Like, of course, it doesn't work. It's just, his style isn't to be like, this is not going to work, but I'm showing you this for one reason. He just lets you figure it out on your own. That's, that's how he is. Whereas like, I would explain it like, don't do this because someone's just going to bridge you off of them and they're going to escape. But here's why I want you to do it. He was just like, he just showed it. And he's like, I wanted you to think about it. So you could come to the conclusion of why it wouldn't work. And then that would lead you to the, you know, the reasoning of where your body should be so that it does work. He's like, I'm, I'm just trying to show these things so people understand like where the, where the arm needs to be, where their hip needs to be, where their knee needs to be, where, you know, like how to do pl- pressure, like how to move, like all those kinds of things. Um, and I was like, Jesus Christ, like, I thought he was just showing a shitty arm bar. <laughs> 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 and I was like, I need to start learning arm bars from someone else. And then it showed that I was just <laughs> I was like, I will never not well, see- listen to you, Brian. <laughs> Stuff like that is, is to me is so valuable because then you can find where the overlap is, which ultimately yeah. uh, you know, brings out the heuristics. If you're doing an arm bar, there's a lot of different details from a lot of different angles, but you need these three things or whatever in order to make it work. So if you yeah. can find a way to you know, isolate the arm and control the shoulder and then the wrist, that's pretty much all you need. Then based on your two body positions and everything else that's going on, figure that shit out, but get these three things or however many it actually is. Sean, you probably have a number yeah. for me. Uh, I never counted. Once you have those, the, the heuristics in place, then you can just figure it out from there. And that, right. To me, that's the most valuable. That's where you, you find those overlaps, you find those heuristics and then you can just explore. Yeah. 
Yep. So, Sean, curious to get your thoughts on the uh, the Lex podcast, the conversation about the greatest. Greatest grappler of all time, greatest <laughs> jujitsu player of all time, and even the definition I found interesting. But, uh, yeah, what, what were your thoughts on that? I hate you guys. <laughs> you <laughs> always put me on will blast. You, will, you say that, will, <laughs> yeah. will you say that a little bit louder, Sean? I said I, 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 said I hate you guys. Always putting me on blast, you know. Um, so, um, just to make sure, like, we set the record straight, like, uh, the way that I thought for a very long time is is that Hickson was basically the god of jiu-jitsu, all right? You know, he is the end-all, be-all, and he's the one that really took off with, like, the self-defense stuff and this and that, and it wasn't really to be questioned. It was, like, this invisible jiu-jitsu stuff, and through time, my my study has changed and what I see has changed and my understanding has also changed. And it feels like it's blasphemous to say, but I think that going back to our original conversation, there is a question that you asked me, Dan, something about Hickson. And I danced around it because I didn't really know how to do it besides talking about it in a business stance and, and what belts are for. But looking at who he fought, most of them were uneducated people in jiu-jitsu. And looking at, like, where, where do you count him as, like, him in his prime? Is it in the choke movie? Or is it, you know, where the most famous fight that he had that I know of is Zulu. He had two fights with him. Now it's hard to find the first fight with him, but it's very easy to find the second fight with him. Now from a, from a technical position. Okay. Um, he was flattened out in closed guard and had an underhook and had the guy completely broken down. And it was very obvious that, Hickson wanted to take his back, but he stood there because he didn't know what to do, but he was flat and he wasn't used to somebody putting that type of pressure or I don't know what it was. But the first thing is, is that if I took any blue belt, any, I shouldn't say any blue belt, but it, any, any, uh, newer blue belt with kind of like the newer idea of how mechanics work. And I put them into that same position. They're going to take the back a hundred percent of the time. You know, they're going to know that they have to get to their side. They're going to know that immediately. It's like their first goal. It's like, I need to get off of being flat and I need to get to my side. So if I'm looking at it from that might've been one of the biggest fights or the biggest fight that he ever had, and I'm watching this from this perspective, and I'm having a hard time even watching it. And when Zulu gets flattened out, of course, you know, it's like, it's over, right? Um, back then, I mean, that would have been devastating to watch. But watching it now, or even watching some of his fights, um, it's totally different. So when 
when I think about Zulu and you can look up his career record, it's something like two and eight or something like that. He's got like two wins. You can fact check me on this. I mean, it's really bad. Right. And I'm this looking was, up the fight right now. Not to fact check you, but I'm going to watch the. No, I haven't seen the fight no, in years. No, please, gonna... please do it. You can fast forward to whatever point he gets. He like jumps guard while getting slammed at the same time and then works from there. But um, I think there might have been some scrambles in between, kind of. But that was like the main thing. Anyways, so that was really hard for me to watch when I had a better <clears throat> understanding of how the mechanics actually worked. Was that it's like, oh, you got an underhook, he's completely broken down in your closed guard, and you just stay flat. You aren't and you're trying to take his back, but you're not getting onto your side at all. At the very beginning, Hickson's guard was very active and very open and was trying to swing from side to side. It looked like he was trying to go from arm bars or something like that. But as soon as there was forward pressure on him and he was flat and had a very deep underhook, he didn't do anything with it for a very long time, just to clarify. So um, Zulu's record sucked. Then there's you look at you look at any MMA fighter that isn't even from this era, right? You look at MMA from like 10 years ago, right? It's very different. It's I mean, it's it's vastly different now, but even 10 years ago, I mean the guys now, like the guys that are in the top 20 would smash the number one guy now. You know what I mean? Things yeah. have grown so yeah. much. So looking at like greatest of all time, for that time, he was. All right. For that specific time. Now, it's easy for me to say this and because I'm able to watch all these great matches. I'm able to train with great people. I have great teachers. You know what I mean? So when you look at that fight, you can't you can't say greatest of all time. Hickson just wasn't okay. like he couldn't hang with any any MMA guy for sure. Doesn't move like it. They're going to have better takedowns, better jujitsu. Or better boxing, at least, right? Or kickboxing, whatever. There's just they're too good. They're too good everywhere. Um, so that's that's kind of like ruled out. Okay, uh, who did he go against in jujitsu competition? Well, he went against like Hegan Machado. And if you watch that match, it's extremely boring, right? Like it's a it's a gi match, and it's mostly just grip fighting for life and death, and like there's some guard pulling and stuff and that's like five minutes of it and it goes on. Hickson does, does win, but I mean, he's completely beat. Um, now contrast that with, with Hodger. Hodger did extremely well in gi, no gi. And he also did pretty good in MMA. I think he was like eight and two or something like that. And I know that one of his losses was against Tim Kennedy and Tim Kennedy is a bad mamma jamma when it comes to MMA. He's a black belt, you know, yes, he was a, that. he was a ranger, you know, I mean, you know, so I mean, who he lost against was like, well, you're, you know, you're kind of supposed to, right. When you're focused specifically on jujitsu, you're a slower guy. I mean, Hodger goes to you like Frankenstein. And just keeps on it's it I mean it's this just it's just Frankenstein. So like when he went against Buchecha, and that's another thing that you brought up, going against the best of the next generation and beating him. He didn't beat him the first time, but the second time around, and it was it was crazy because he had, from what I remember, he had a straight sleeve grip, right? Just yep. a just a straight sleeve grip, and then he got him into this he pulled guard and basically the 
uh, uh, Buchecha was had his leg up, so it was like in between his guard, so he couldn't pull him anymore. So Hodger understood that that was the stopping point. He switched his grip to a cross grip now, and now he was able to actually extend his arm to expose the back. And so once he exposed the back, he switched back to a straight grip. And then dug out the collar and strangled him from the back in in a in a, uh, a cross back type of uh, like a bow and arrow almost, you know. And yeah. wa- watching that is it was just fucking crazy, right? <laughs> like, <laughs> like it, do I think that Hickson could have ever gone against Buchecha? Hell no, hell no, not in a million years. I don't think so. All right. So like, I know a lot of people are gonna get like super butt hurt about this, like. I respect Hickson, okay? I respect what he's done for all of us. I would have never started jujitsu if it wasn't for Hickson, all right? But it disrespects everybody else if I say that he's the best, he's the greatest of all time. It disrespects every competitor in the sport right now, every practitioner that, that's doing it, and that's the way I feel. That's fair, and I, I think that it's... It's a very low resolution conversation to ask who is the best ever, 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 because there have been some some um, revolutionary things, namely the Internet, that have affected jujitsu along with everything else in the world. But the the ability to you know post videos, share information and all of that, um, not just for the sake of popularity, but to basically eliminate all the secret techniques, right? Because in Hickson's era, you you learn you know you learn from your team, you know you you learn from Elio, right? Whereas and and back then they definitely had sacred techniques. You know there were black belts that would not teach their students certain things, um, and the the you know like you were saying going to other schools and training with other people was frowned upon. All that all that shit. Um, completely opposite now. Everything's shared. Everything's free. Um, a great example is you look at what happened with leg locks took what, maybe four or five years for the playing field to basically be leveled. Um, and now it's just a matter of who can actually execute things better. There's no more secret techniques. Uh, and in that type of an information environment, it, it's an exponential difference. So first of all, it's, you know, I, I would say Hickson's the greatest for his generation, um, I think he, I still think he would hold up a prime Hickson would hold up better, um, today or say like 10 years ago than you might think. I don't think he'd be a champion necessarily, but I, I think he would hold up better than you think. Um, at least for like a straight jujitsu match. Who's in his and weight then, division? Who would be in his ahead. weight division like 10 years ago? I'm trying to think who would be in his weight division like 10 years ago. He's like, what, 180? What was his... He's like 185. Yeah, like, yeah, 185. Something like that. So who's 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 185 from 10 years ago? That's uh, uh Galvao. Lucas Lepre. Uh Yeah, I don't see that happening. Um I I would bet on it. I I put money on Hickson. I mean, I wouldn't be crushed if he lost, but I would I, I'd be willing to bet on Hickson then. Uh, well, the I other thing the you have to consider though is that let's say a hypothetical hot tub time machine he would be learning the new things. Well, exactly. So that's a great segue to my next point. Um, sorry to cut you off, but basically just iron sharpens iron. So yeah. with the information flowing 
as it as freely as it does now. Um, if Hickson were to be training in this era with access to everything and with the training partners that are that much better, I think he would be that much better. Yeah. But I mean, I'm, that's like, that gets kind of squishy because, you know. Yeah. I mean, I just. Who, know, who I, knows what happens in different time periods? Oh, dude, the Hickson of, of 20, you know, 60 would right. be awesome. <laughs> right. And the, the Hickson from the 24th century. <laughs> Blow your mind. Yeah, yeah I, so. I just well, here's the interesting. Oh, go ahead. Uh, I was saying I I just watched this video today that was uh, Icy Mike, the guy who runs uh, Hard to Hurt that that uh, that YouTube channel, and oh, it was yeah, yeah, yeah. and it was uh, how would Mike Tyson do in MMA and how would his kicks look and this and that or whatever, and them just going on this full ten. I I I mean, you know, thinking about it, I love that shit, um, but I mean, all I can go off of is like hard hard videotape of like what actually happened what their strategies yeah. were and comparing those things um them learning and who they're training with and all this other stuff you know where it's like the possibilities i mean if if hickson started if he was you know 15 years old and started training today i mean hickson would be amazing just like everybody else you know what i mean right um yeah. so i mean i I got nothing else on that, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> the, the only thing I'd add that I find interesting is that, um, or maybe it's two things, but, you know, I, 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 Dan and I've talked about, about this in the podcast, but I, I've been reading a lot about like performance and high performance and uh, being an elite level performer, that sort of thing. And the, the things that are required to do that. And honestly, in the era that Hickson was in, the type of training that they did and how they did it wasn't efficient. I think that, that was the ultimate detriment in, in this argument is that, like, as an example, you have someone like Halls, who there are a lot of people who think that had he lived, he would have actually surpassed Hickson in terms of his, his grappling abilities and actually could roll up on him and do and fuck him up and so whether well, in, that, including hickson that, hickson would say that yeah yeah and so but you think about the training that halls did that you're aware of versus what hickson did and it actually is different um but the types of training methods that occurred in the 70s and stuff when they were both alive is vastly different than it is now um i you know i uh, i read a book recently um and I'm blanking on the name of it, but Richard Bressler wrote it. He was uh, Horian's first student. Oh wow! Uh, he was uh, he was uh, he literally owned the first Gracie garage. He owned the house, and Horian moved in with him. And instead of like paying rent, he gave him free private lessons. And uh, it's a fascinating story. But um, he talked about how like how the, all the Gracies were like super cutthroat. You know, like the gyms were just there's just a bunch of beasts just going hard all day every day and it's like there's some merit to that you know we've talked a little bit about daisy fresh um sean and i have uh and uh, um you know they go hard like that all the time but there's limitations to um keeping to training like that and having simplistic training not allowing yourself to learn without the fear of getting hurt as an, as one example and john danher actually mentions that um when he talks about how they train um, he doesn't go into a huge amount of detail. I'm actually curious to hear him go into more detail, but he does um, He does talk about how a lot of what the drilling that they do isn't full-on live sparring. It's progressional, situational sparring so that you can learn. And if you're always going hard, doing the same things, doing your A-game over and over again, you can sharpen that up, but it's only going to get as sharp as, it, as you allow it to be. If you don't ever actually grow, you don't get any better. 
and you um even those athletes back then would hit a point where their jujitsu doesn't change after so many years they're just doing the same shit over again and they happened to be doing so much jujitsu that they were just all the gracies at that point were just a far away above and beyond everyone else um that'd be the first thing the second thing that i noticed is that in this kind of ties into this is that there are still Gracies to this day that win world championships of the color belts in particular. Like, so it isn't like there is a, ta- like you could say that, Oh, they're a talented family. Like they have a lot of athletics. I think they just do so much jujitsu that they, they get better than everyone else because they're always on the mats. And that's part of that high performance is like actively learning and getting better and better. Um, and I, I think that's really the, in my opinion, my estimation, that's probably the biggest reason why Hickson was so dominant when he was is because that's literally all he did and no one else was really doing the things he was doing even if he was doing them not as optimally as he could he's just 30 levels above everyone and now everyone is caught up and has exceeded that because we found better training methods better eating habits better recovery i mean he didn't have a cryotherapy when he was you know in the 70s as an example you know or massage therapy probably massage therapy but although he um, would do yoga in a uh, freezing cold river so there's yeah. That. And so, I mean, the, he's definitely <laughs> figuring some of these things out. And like, obviously he was in very good shape and I don't want to diminish that, but we've come a long way as a society in terms of how to train and how to, how to reach peak performance. Yep. Um, and so I think that that's probably like, that, that, that hot tub time machine situation, like I'm sure he would adapt because he has the drive to do it. Um, it's just a matter of, no, I don't think he's going to fucking beat Bushesha. So Bushesha has like 60 pounds on him. <laughs> Yeah. maybe 80 pounds yeah. like first dude. off he, he's got what did gordon say like what he gordon ryan said when he fought bushesha he was like he, he cut to 245 and he was like walking around at 265 can you imagine grappling someone with a six-pack at 265 yeah fuck that nope i don't want any of that i'm good <laughs> no like um good luck lachlan like i'm not trying to do that shit <laughs> You know, we kind of touched on it a little bit, but I, I definitely think that it, it's worth bringing up is is that, you know, Hickson was a massive innovator for his time. You know, he really was, yep. um, especially for Mount. Uh, he and everybody talks about his movement and how how that was really the main thing and in, in how he moved he he included the movement and it wasn't this like static position um and that goes from bottom and top and everything else um and that was him getting everything firsthand like you were touching on uh dan that that it was it was straight from elio or straight from you know holes or whoever it was where now before i remember there was this massive criticism of like you know don't don't go to youtube it's like the worst place you're just going to get a bunch of bullshit techniques this and that you know fuck that you know and then and then you hear eddie bravo talking about stuff about like you know that's one good thing about jujitsu it's not downloadable you can't you know you got to fill it and this and that which is partially true but then john danaher i think it was like uh, December 2018, something like that. I remember it was snowing, but basically they shot the first leg lock DVD and uh, they had a bad uh, audio on it. And John came. That's right. John came back in like a week and reshot it like immediately. And like, and the whole thing, reshot the whole thing with good audio, you know, and then it was released to the public. 
Well, now it wasn't like you have this individually segregated technique where you had to build like your YouTube list of like, this is X guard and this is whatever, you know what I mean? You actually had a set of like 10 hours of how to thoroughly leg lock somebody. Right. And that, and that right there, the explosion of that DVD created BJJ fanatics which now is its own platform and other people are trying to copy it. But you can go to one place, have every single thing that you ever wanted to actually know about and invest into it. You know, we, 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 we talk about black belts being professors, right? And, you know, and like the only money that we put in is our tuition fee. And if we're going to invest in ourselves and our education and things, and you really want to know about it, that's what you, you invest in to get those ideas going. And I'm trying to circle this back to Hickson was an innovator. He didn't have all this stuff. All right. No. A lot of this stuff, he started the groundwork for it. So all of these people already saw all this stuff and they were just adding on to it, all the good stuff, everything yep. that was working. They just added on to it. So I, I want to make sure that it's like really clear, like that I definitely appreciate what he's done. I just can't step on yep. everybody else to say, you know, he's the greatest. Well, so John, why do you hate Hickson so much? <laughs> yeah, Let's get into this. He's such no, a- no, I, you're, you're absolutely right. For his time, an amazing innovator. Uh, for the information that he had access to. Um, and I think we all stand, you know, stand on the shoulder of giants type of thing with what he offered to the art of jujitsu. And now it's just gone that much farther. What I find very interesting is that um, let's take this example and let's let's utilize a different example, like in a different sport. I forget the guy's name, but there was a guy who was the first person to break four minutes in the mile. No one thought it was possible and he did it. And then like within a year, like within a couple of years, like 15 people did it after him, right? Um, I've never heard anyone ever claim that that guy was the greatest runner of the mile ever, even though he literally did what people would like the entire world thought was impossible at the time. Yeah, he was an, he was an innovator. Like he literally did something that everyone thought was impossible because he tried really hard and he figured out how to get better. He had no platform to do it. No one else before him had done this shit. So we had to like figure it out. And then he just kind of gutted his way to victory. And and then everyone's like, oh, we can do it. And now we have, I think like the, what's the fastest mile times? Like 340. It's like so much faster. And it's like, of course he, like he, he would get just get smoked right now. He wouldn't even make like, like a high school, like like he he would do well in high school, with his mile time. He might win a he might win a state title in high school. Yeah, you know that's so crazy. In some states, that's so crazy that that we put up these these mental barriers. You know, like you know, it's it's impossible. I can't do it, so I'm just not going to yeah. strive to achieve these things. <clears throat> and then as soon as it's broken, it's like that's possible. Oh wow. What? Yeah. Okay. Now I'm gonna yep. try. You know that that's very weird that that um, there aren't more people like that at the top that are really pushing those limits. You know to see what's next. You know I, I think that I and I think it's common. I do it all the time. You know putting barriers on myself, yep. and I think that part of that is to stay sane because as soon as you take those bumpers off man it's all off the rails baby like (laughs) (laughs) you know so i think um a big part of it is uh 
and just to finish my thought with Hickson, like, I, I agree with what you say about like, he's an innovator and he deserves all the respect that he gets. But like that guy who ran the mile, like that guy's the one who did it. Like he'll always have that. But those are two separate conversations in my mind. It isn't a matter of, is he the greatest because he did this? It's like, he's one of the best ever because of what he was able to do with what he had, but that doesn't make him the best. And those are two separate things to be proud of, but they're different. Like right now, I think it's very clear to me that it's either Hodger or Gordon. And maybe you could make a case for Marcelo because of how his size difference, but because he's so much smaller and what he was able to accomplish as well. But I mean, even then, like I, you know, I, I, yeah, I see you shaking your head and smiling, Sean. I, it's fair. Like I, I, I get it. Like I mean, he's actually fought Hodger and, and gotten his butt whooped. So, like I, you know, that does kind of settle that argument for me. But um, I think that people place mental barriers on themselves um, for a lot of reasons. I, because life is because it's hard. Like, well, I think it's it's, it's self defense as well. It, yeah. It's mentally like you know through evolution. We, to protect ourselves, we place these limitations. So to get past them, which we should strive to do, but it's an unnatural thing. So it takes a very what, conscious and focused effort to do it. Well, if you think about it evolutionarily, right? Like people who do that kind of stuff probably didn't, don't survive as much. Like the risk of death over time is a lot higher when you try and push boundaries. Yeah, now, exactly. We're in, a, we're in a period now where like the, the, your risk of death is very, very low almost all the time at least in the, the um, first world countries in particular. But um, but still, like, if that's an evolutionary thing, it's actually stupid to take risks like that. Yeah, well, no, I mean, we've, literally we <laughs> so would like, select what? for that. Like, yeah. yeah, there was plenty of guys that were willing to take risks. They just didn't live long enough to have kids, you know? <laughs> yeah, so. you know, and then, but yeah, I would say that I, I think that as part of that, like people get complacent. It's easy, I think that's, um, it's easy to get complacent. Gordon talked about that with Joe Rogan and then um, John Danner talks about it with Lex Friedman, uh, kind of on the other end of the coin, but he talks about the necessity of persistence, but he does actually mention, he says that, um, what's, I, I'm going to fumble the quote, but basically he's like, you know, what happens is basically you get to black belt. They both said this actually, both Gordon and John, you essentially, you get to black belt and you do the same thing for 10 years and you don't challenge yourself. Yeah. And that's, I mean, that's literally what complacency is. And it's hard not to get into that, that mindset um, over time, whether it's with jujitsu or other things, um, because it's easy. Well, how, how I, how I understood it was, is that, and Danaher was doing a very good job in, in guiding Lex to the question that needed to be asked. And that's how he's actually progressing and who he's progressing with and why he's not progressing with these black belts. And that that was yeah. because he's only showing his A game, it, which is closing him off to interpretation and exploration mm -hmm. of, of different things. And, and he would drill with blue belt females typically because all, nobody else wanted to drill him because it was boring and it sucked. But they're kind of like, hey, you know what? I get to drill with a, a black belt, and I don't have to roll hard with all the guys. So it was like kind of this trade off. But it's a, it's a, it's a trade off that isn't going to be fruitful for him. But being able to submit to these black belts, putting them, his advice was basically to roll with these black belts, and instead of only having competitive matches with them, take them to their A game, and be able to to work from that. 
so that you you're yeah. able to take the best of their games, even if it's the worst of your games. You get tabbed, you know, all the time. You can learn so much there, you know. Um, you know, it'll, it'll haunt you for a long time, but you know, you'll you'll get you'll get you'll get better, you know. And um, I think Lex really bit down on that hard. It was a real eye opener for him. That he's like, shit. He's like, that is why I, I open up on these purple and blue belts and I totally shut down. And now it's just like a, you know, a straight yeah. fight with these other black belts. This is what I like about being a, a shitty blue belt is that I don't have an A game. I have like five F games. So no matter what I'm doing, <laughs> I'm just, I'm just, every, I'm just learning all the time because everyone's just like doing their shit and my mind's working. And I'm just like, yeah, new thing, new thing, new thing. <laughs> Always in those bad positions. <laughs> well, you're definitely not, you're definitely yeah. not a shitty blue belt, Bo. Let's let's make sure that that's that said. You're definitely not. Um, yeah. Well, thank you. I appreciate that. No, I I think everybody here is 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 pretty competent. So, um, you know, I and I'm I'm really underselling this. So, I, I, I Dan, you have a you have a a massive amount of knowledge. You know, so do you both, your amount of studying that you put in is, is a lot more than most people, you know, um, you don't just, you both don't just go to class and call it good. And then whatever happens, happens. Both of you have this problem with that's good enough, you know, and, you yeah. know, I, I appreciate that about both of you guys. So thank you. Well, thank yeah. you. That's very nice of you to say. Yeah. It's, yeah. It's never, never good enough. I think we talked about this in our last podcast about the blue belt blues, but I think that's why I've never gotten it is because I'm, I'm, I'm always just searching for something for a new answer to something. I don't ever get like, Oh, I got it. I figured it out. I've never, yeah. cause whenever I well, feel like I, I figured it out, someone's like, let me show you why you're really dumb and wrong. And then <laughs> whatever I was doing, it like doesn't work. It's like, <laughs> I thought my mount was good. Someone's like, Nope, I'm just going to like lift you off of me. Your mount sucks. Try again. <laughs> uh, I, I, oh, Sean, I got a question for you. Yeah, sure. So uh, on the, the lighter uh, end of the greatest of all time question. Oh, shit. Um, well, not on the lighter <laughs> end. Um, Dan Error had um, defined grappling as basically, I guess I would call submission grappling. And then jujitsu, he said, has four faces being gi, no gi, MMA, and self-defense. In my mind, grappling was always a much larger larger category, which includes sambo and judo and you know all the other grappling arts. So basically, any martial art where the goal is to you know grab a hold of somebody and manipulate their body. So he said uh, jujitsu um, had four parts, not not grappling. Right, right. but he says he, he was. Uh, framing it in that grappling is a subset of jujitsu. It's one one of those four, like what we would call no gi. That's what he was calling grappling. Whereas, and this just could be a semantics thing that he did for that conversation. Uh, but grappling, like I said, is my understanding is the super broad category of of all the grappling arts, not just like sub only. I don't know. Did that that stand out to you at all, or? Not really. How do you define grappling? <laughs> not not really. When someone says I grappling, mean, do you think sub only, or do you think of the all of the the grappling arts? I, I mean, 
so to me, I, I think it's important to, to practice overtime rounds. I think that that it's a very good way to do that. And, and also in like a, a variety of different positions, not just, you know, the arm bar position and the back position. I think it's important to, to do that. And that's kind of how you, uh, pressure test different things. But I think the jujitsu is the, the most, um, uh, fluid out of all of them. Um, there's the least amount of rules, right? Like, like if you look at catch, catch wrestling for an example, because you know, there's submissions in it, um, and there's no gi, um, you know, there's pins involved. So they do a lot of things to keep their shoulders off the ground, which limits your, your grappling. But what it does put you in, if you are on top is kind of like this cop type of position. A lot of times where people are bellying out, you know, and you're going into different types of lifts or submission holds that normally wouldn't come up. It's not as organic as jujitsu in my eyes. Um, the power of pinning somebody only through their shoulders, and I'm, I'm going to catch a lot of flack for this, but I, I feel like if you focus so much on only pinning the two shoulders, you're missing out on a lot of other stuff and a lot of other options that you could be spreading your time through. Not that I, I don't, um, I don't appreciate wrestling at all. It's, it's not that way. I'm just saying that out of all the grappling arts, um, Sambo, you know, it's kind of the, the mix between judo and, and, uh, and, and jujitsu a little bit. And if you're watching combat Sambo, I actually really like combat Sambo. That's like some, badass shit it's a lot of fun. yeah headbutts and yeah. like just craziness going on people getting knocked out and then flying arm bars out of nowhere you know i mean that's i mean it's just great <laughs> stuff you know um that's a whole different thing i'm, I'm getting sidetracked um <laughs> but I, I i do think that they're like in jujitsu you have you have the idea of like you can you can fight with the judo stance. You can fight with a, with a wrestling stance. You can fight with the sambo stance. You know, you can fight with with all of these different stances. You can, you can fight in no stance at all if you're unable to and just pull guard. You know, you don't have to. You know, and we're just talking about the standing position and getting it to the ground. Once it gets to the ground, you know, you only have so much time in judo. That's why you, you see so many clock chokes. Um, you know, because they don't have a position yet. So they're, they're, they're using the collar to set up the choke first and then wrapping them up into it. Or you're also connected in the throw in an upper body where you're shoulder to shoulder with somebody. And as you release them, their shoulder goes to your hips, which falls into an arm bar. Same goes with like wrestling. When Danaher was talking about how the progressions are going to be made with more wrestling types of things, I think that it's going to be very similar where um, getting the the dig and the bite on the heel from a wrestling standpoint, if you have like a single leg or something like that, and then actually dropping into an uh, in ashigarami, some type of leg entanglement um, is going to be the direction that it actually goes from a sport aspect, but the injury rate is going to be much higher. Mm-hmm. So I, I don't know if that answers your question. I just rambled for forever, so. Well, I, I will say I, I didn't ask the question effectively, but I'm glad I did not because I love what you just said. Um, but I wasn't thinking like any type of value judgment, like literally just like when someone says grappling, 
do you think of the broad term of all the grappling arts, including sambo and wrestling and jiu-jitsu and all the rest of it, or do you think just what we would call sub-only? I, I don't think of it as, like, sub-only. Sub-only is typically, like, EBI rounds or just a draw, basically, at the end, yeah. right? So Okay, so it, it, I only brought it up because the, the way I think Lex asked the question to John um, – it threw me. He's like, you know, jujitsu versus grappling. I thought, well, jujitsu is a part of grappling. Yes. As is judo, as is sambo, as is everything else. But the way Donaher was uh, taking that definition was to mean sub only. So minor detail. But. Gotcha. I, I think that I think that jujitsu is kind of transforming all of these different grappling arts and mixing them up. Uh, in a really good way. Um, that's, that, that's really it. I mean, there, there, I mean, there's, you know, no gi matches. I mean, so, so like when I trained at ring demon, they called it submission grappling. It wasn't no gi jujitsu. It wasn't called jujitsu at all. It was submission grappling. If you look okay. on their website right now, I'm sure it still says submission grappling. So, um, that I've always kind of just looked at it as no gi, you know, you're going to, you're going to wrestle yeah. on the feet and then, you know, when it goes to the ground, you just go until somebody gets subbed, <laughs> you know? So that's, that's how I always saw it. I, I, I didn't think too much of it when he said it though, in the way that you're saying. I thought he was breaking it down simply because of the focus that Hodger and Gordon both have. Like right. Hodger, oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Hodger was very, I mean, he, well, he did do ADCC and did win that, um, twice, I believe, which is much more of the, the sub only style grappling though there, you can win obviously by points and advantages and things. Um, his focus was no gi jujitsu with that, that rule set and then gi jujitsu with that rule set. His focus was not what Gordon's focus is, which is essentially to get to a no time limit no holds barred or maybe some slight rules but that like there it was interesting when he broke it down but as he started to explain it more i was like okay he's like he's making very finite distinctions about these things um whereas you, you can include you could just say oh we're gonna grapple and then just do a little bit and then you could just sample from everything like we're gonna do a right. little judo little sambo yeah, little yeah, catch yeah. um versus doing one of those things very specifically yeah. um and um yeah gordon's whole thing is how do i do sub only essentially yeah and, but and just as a peer just it by itself versus how do i do jujitsu yeah and i i agree with him uh to bring jujitsu back to its truest form which is submission um so he yeah. has a he has a really hard time finding opponents for one which is ridiculous the other thing though is is that the ones that do usually take the fight that are at his weight they don't engage him so if he puts a time limit on it or put, puts points on it they're gonna play this like really cagey game and he he talks about it all the time everybody talks about it all the time but if it's no time limit that means you have to engage. Yeah. You have to engage and eventually you do have to play jujitsu. So that's why he always talks about I'm a slow starter. And then as 
as things pick up, then I'm going to start doing it because he expects the guy who he's going against to basically stand back in a square stance and then try to jump around his guard like an idiot for like the first 10 minutes. And then as they get tired or more sweaty or whatever, now he can actually start going in because they start getting the confidence. They get more sloppy, you know, and, yeah. and he can actually attack them. You know, I, I think that that's, that's a massive problem is he's having a hard time, uh, I mean, I think that he'd be fine with doing time matches all day long or point matches if people actually engaged him, but they don't. Yeah. Well, I don't really care for the... I mean, I understand the, the need for points in a game and the creation of a game or competition in certain instances. Um, but yeah, I think sub only is is you know kind of the purest form we have right now. Like, for example... Um, since I knew we had this podcast, I was looking at some old Hodger matches and, uh, Hodger versus, is it Zandy or, or Zandy? Hibera? Yeah. Shandy. Um, and they go like a full 10 minutes and at the end of it, um, Hodger is in, is locked in a real nice arm bar and it looks like, I swear to God, it looks like Hibera tapped, but it was at the bell. And Nibiru stands up, and he won because he had like one advantage or, or some little thing. It was just it. It seemed so wrong. It's like no man, Hodger just beat you, but the points are different. So I, I definitely prefer a, a purer form of that type of competition. I agree. I agree. Yeah. I think that there should be some type of penalty for for like uh, especially for OT rounds. People that just kind of stall out to get to OT because that's what they're good at. If you're going to do right. that, then just have a, a tournament, just OT. Just get to it. Just do OT. I don't I don't care <laughs> about watching this other 10, 15 minutes of you guys just, like, not doing anything. Or only that's your one warm-up guy. role. Do that in the back. Yeah, yeah. You know, just do OT rounds, and that'd be that'd be that'd that would actually be really fun to watch and make OT not just from those, you know, two positions. Make it from, like like fully locked in like inside triangle or something, you know, and just, you know, that'd be <laughs> do, fun, you know, do a, do like a best of five, but it's from every joint. It's like, you get a shoulder joint locked, you get a choke, like the back, you get an arm lock, you get a heel hook. Oh man. That'd be a lot of fun to watch. Dude, this is Dude, interesting. You just, you just start, you just start people in like four eleven. <laughs> Just they go. <laughs> yeah, no, that's perfect. And they Dude, get this they is get, interesting. They get double and you trouble. Know, something like this would act because it's it's basically it's positional sparring type of thing. So if this became popular, people would train specifically for that, and it would elevate those parts of the game, right? Like how much better have people gotten from armbar escapes and back escapes because they are training for the OT rounds and attacks, right? Yeah, yeah. Well, and that's dude. It so raised the game. That's one of the things that Gordon mentioned, um, John hinted at, and that's actually what pre that's what he preaches about why he's doing his defensive systems yep. is that in order to get good at attacks is you need to actually elevate the level of defense. And he's like, most people's attacks are shit because the defenses are shit and people think they have good attacks, but really they have good, they have mediocre or shitty attacks against shitty defenders. And so if you put people in all these weird positions in competition, they would have to get better. Like, could you, like, it would be, it would be cool. I don't know if I would do, I probably would do it, but how, how cool would it be to be like, you know, best of five. And one of the positions is you have to be in a reap. 
you don't, they're not going to get a dig yet. They're going to go for the dig, but you're going to start in a reap. Yeah. It'd be a lot of like fun. You have to get out of a, yeah. It's like the, the, the heel hook defense game would fucking go through the roof. Yes. Eddie Cummings is heel hook defense. Cause he's got like a, a heel hook defense DVD. That thing would probably just fly off the shelves. I don't know if it's any good, but it's the only one I know of. And so it would fly off the shelves until some people started <laughs> recording some more shit. And it's like all of a sudden, like no one's going to be tapping to helix because they understand how to, you know, how to get, you know, how to, how to get out of them. Yeah. Or and even like I still, you still see high level guys who don't really understand how to get out of them. I mean, it's not like it's easy, but it'd be really cool to see. Dude, we might be onto something here. I mean, even even if they're going to do two five minute rounds, right? And each one of them got to start with the Kimura controlled grip. That'd be fun to watch. There is yeah, there's yeah. no open guard play. You're already there, you know. Just <laughs> <laughs> you know, let's go. You know, that'd be a lot of fun to watch. I wonder. My prediction would be that even though you're starting in those positions and they're dangerous, I think you would see less injuries overall in the sport. And the reason for that is because, especially for like like people fuck their shoulders up Kamora locks because shoulder rotations are horrible and people hurt their you know their knees and heel looks because they don't know how to defend against heel looks and they turn the wrong ways or people get you know really aggressive with them and and do all those things but if there's popular competition in those positions you have to learn how to do it safely or you can't compete right you just, yeah those most of those injuries so, are all low level shit right people that don't know what they're doing so yeah Give people so I, a reason I, I, to get better. I, I could see a situation where like maybe initially like you see some injury because people are like, oh, let's do it. And they're like, oh, fuck, we can't. I can't just rip a Kimura from the Kimura lock on top every time. A, because people are going to figure out how to stop it from working. But B, I'm not going to have any training partners if I do it because I'm just going to rip shoulders out, you know, like you yeah. to figure shit out. And then you go from there and um, that'll elevate the defense. And then also the attack as well. And I think you'll see people learn how to like move their bodies better. Um, I mean, hell just watching Gary tone and defend everything elevates people's games. You know, it's like you yeah. learn how to do the weird shit he does. And it's like, Oh, like, okay. Or what was it? Um, Imanari getting out of that head and arm. Oh yeah. That was awesome. And went straight to an inside heel like, hook. Yeah. You did a back. Roll. Yeah. Like, <laughs> yeah. That, that did was, you see this Dan? Uh, no, I did not. Oh, it was so good. He was in a, he was in like a, a head and arm choke. Someone had him in the choke and it was like super deep and disgusting. And I was like, he's just going to pass out. Cause he, he's like, I'm not tapping to this shit. And he fucking backwards rolls out of it. Yeah. Over the opposite shoulder, which is really funny. So <laughs> yeah. So, so who was he fighting? Oh, damn. Don't even remember. It was at a combat. But he backwards rolls. It was the last combat jujitsu yeah. that he was on. That's right. Yeah. Okay. He backwards rolls and then into a dominant position. You're like, what? <laughs> Yeah. It was, Not only do you invent the MNRE roll that like, so you invent a, a, a crazy move, but then you backwards roll out of a fully locked head arm choke. Yeah. Uh, that was amazing. That, that was amazing. I've tried. Oh, I've was tried he uh, fighting Ben Eddie? No, no. Do, 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 do. All right. Sorry. I'll find it. Cool. I've, I've been in a couple of uh, front headlock chokes recently because both Wang and Hawaiian Chris like to do them. And I've just tried to move around a bit to see if there's like any space for me to like backwards roll. I don't, I haven't yet figured out how he's done it. I don't, there's like, I don't really have the room to like do that without like, I feel like if I try, like it's really going to hurt. 
It might. You got a hold of your head after all. Yeah. And so I really want to figure that one out. Yeah. Uh, well, I mean, the way I remember it, and I could be wrong. I mean, I didn't study this right before we came on, but I'm pretty sure they rolled. What the fuck, Sean? I, I know, right? <laughs> no, but I, I think that what happened is the guy was driving into him and lifted up the near shoulder so it allowed his okay. his his uh the room to be on the uh, on the far shoulder and so he rolled over the far shoulder i think that's how, okay. i think that's how it happened maybe he did some extra stuff in there to make that magic happen but i i if i remember right he went over the other shoulder which was like totally counterintuitive <laughs> you know it's like what? yeah right yeah yeah, that was that was magic. <laughs> Crazy. Right on. Well, I think we should start a uh, competition where um, it's only overtime rounds. AOT, man, all overtime. I yeah. love it. Yeah, and it's just five rounds. Can you imagine how quick the competition would be? Because it'd be like pretty short. Would be my guess. I don't know. At least at first, it'd just be just a whole bunch of like super quick submissions and get outs, and then. You could just run through people. It'd be great. Yeah. Like we can average like a, th- a three hour competition, 100 competitors, no problem. You know, just. <laughs> well, I like the idea no. of uh, doing five different positions. So even if it does go kind of quick, you still got an opportunity to uh, get some other subs in there. Well, I think it would eliminate what Sean was saying with some people who will stall so they can get to the overtime. Exactly. Because they're good at the armbar defense. In the back take defense. It's like, that's two. And like, you want to be good at those, but like, it's going to be really difficult to master those and master a Kimura control and master being in some form of, you know, invert, um, uh, some form of reap with a, with a footlock imminent. And then we could probably come up with the fifth one. Um, like, you know, those are, those are all different things and dedicating the time would be difficult for a while. So it's actually really interesting when you look at the the history of OT, right? Like it used to be five minute rounds, right? <clears throat> Starting from this locked position and they would go off of ride time. So most people would, uh, at the beginning anyways, they'd go for ride time. They wouldn't actually attack a lot. So they'd take the back and they try to ride the back as a safety for their for their first inning, right? Um, yeah. So they, they'd know that no matter what, they got their cap at five. Right. Um, whereas now it's down to two minutes. Now that changes everything because everybody's looking for the quick tap. So more people are taking the armbar position. So I thought that that was that was very interesting because it's much harder to to. Well, I shouldn't say it's harder, but it. OK, it's harder to strangle somebody than it is to break their arm. It's a quicker tap. Right. Like when yeah. you're strangling yeah. somebody like that, even if you're really good, there's like a two or three count right before they go out. Um, you know, breaking an arm is like, you know, it's so quick. So, um, I thought that that was pretty cool. That is, yeah. I, I would be, my idea would be to have like one minute. So it's quick. Like it, like the whole, the whole entire match should take 10 minutes at most. I like how stern you are. Five overtimes. One minute each. What was that, Sean? I said, I like how stern you are on this. I wanted one minute each. <laughs> yeah. Straight Shogun style. Like, 
Some yeah, it's like <laughs> you you have one minute to escape or get submitted, and like the person gets a minute of time. Like I'm fine with ride time, but like you get you get the sub, and then you like you know I think how is the overtime currently work in my head? I feel like it'd be best if like if you're able to submit somebody, and then the next position they choose if they don't get out, like they lose. Right. You can just end end it quickly. Like that seems reasonable to me. It's like if you can't get out of the next position, like you're fucking done. Like I got the sub. Goodbye. It would be cool also that, like, when we're talking about this, I mean, we're using five, but it could be any number of different holds, right? Um, Yeah. You know, it it would be cool to see who the overall best finisher and best defenders actually are overall over the whole body because the skill set for, for like, armbar or back are so much different than, like, you know, getting out of a inside heel hook or whatever, you know, um, you know, they're just totally different skill sets. So you, you get to see who, who the most complete grapplers are for finishing and for yeah. deep escapes. Right. I, I think that that would be, yeah. that would be a real eye opener for a lot of people. No, very true. And so maybe what you'd want to do is have one style of competition where it's, uh, it isn't a best of three. It's sort of a who gets the submission, who can hold on, and then that's the person who wins, and maybe it goes to five if it needs to. And then you have a legitimate best of three who can get three submissions um, out of the five to like prove that they can actually submit through multiples. Um, something to that effect, yeah. Or you just keep it going, so then it becomes long. You, ever, you just start over until someone gets more submissions. It's just go on for like 30 minutes <laughs> just go to you until you die do either yeah, you guys do either you guys know any local fight promoters yeah i know uh i know lamont um he does the proving grounds or whatever i i mean okay. I, I i wouldn't say like like uh i know him well or anything like that but i mean i i know him i've i've rolled with him uh, that, that 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 works. I was just curious to see kind of on the logistical side. Oh, also Austin. What would it take to put something together like this? Also Austin. He's got Washington submission series. Shout out Austin. So Austin's doing promotion now. Shit. Well, yeah, go he's he's had okay. one for for a while. Uh, he had it streamed and everything for the last one that I remember. I I went no and, kidding. And saw it. Yeah, it was it was actually really really good. Um, yeah. Send us the. Uh the link to that and we'll put it in the show notes okay yeah i can do that people yeah people can check that out that'd be cool i'd be totally down to do that i can do that hey really fast because i feel like we're wrapping things up here i want to i want to say this because like it's been bugging me since you brought up marcelo garcia and i haven't been able to get my mind off of it (laughs) and i'm I, I, i have to bring this up if i'm gonna if i'm gonna say anything about hickson i gotta bring this up about marcelo being the greatest of all time okay so, so in, in the time where Marcelo was dominating everybody, and by the way, I, I love Marcelo, okay? Um, but in the time, uh, everybody was not passing correctly, and they were passing with the square stance, right? And in the time, everybody was fighting for outside position, and he was given inside position, which was his game. And that's... Yeah. that's that's a massive reason why he was so successful, but he had a very hard time in half guard getting past and also on top half guard extracting a leg. Mm -hmm. He had a massive problem with both of those. So anytime anybody was actually in a real passing position, 
he got smashed. Well, I, I shouldn't say any time, but a lot of times, okay? And yeah. then him, when he was passing in half guard, a lot of times he would end up in like a, a straight hamstring type of position uh, where he's like three quarters out, but he couldn't extract a leg. He didn't know how, you know? So, so these are things that are like basic fundamentals of half guard passing, but he didn't know them. So to so say, you're saying yeah. Marcelo Garcia does not know his fundamentals. Okay. I'm, I'm, yes, yeah. that's exact. Podcast he, is over. He also, he also, uh, he also didn't uh, like arm bars or Kamoras either. You know, so. Well, I I have texted Brian, and you're no longer welcome back at the. I okay, that's fair. So, <laughs> so, so no, I just I, no, I uh, go ahead. I was gonna say I I I, I agree. I um I, I've heard before that uh, a lot of people do consider him one. Uh, one you know in the in the discussion um i don't necessarily i do think that until gordon decides to continue destroying everybody that it'll for me it'll be hodger but i i like marcelo because of how he was able to do what he did and the size at which he did it like that's that's one of the reasons like why i would consider him in contention for that, though I don't think it's a serious contention, is because he was so much smaller than the other guys. Marcelo was a killer. And Marcelo was a killer, and a lot of the people that he went yeah. against, he couldn't really take their back except for his instep. So that's why he switched off to to crucifix position and just murdered everybody. Yeah, you know. So and but the the other thing that I really liked about it, and this is one of the things I admire about Hodger too, is that. Like you said, people were fighting for outside, and they gave him inside, and they were literally giving him his own game. He was like the first person to literally upload his actual game online so that everyone else could watch it. And they still fucked that up. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's like, it, like that. I, I like that about it. But he's like, I don't really care if people know what I'm going to do. I'm still going to beat them. Yeah. Like the balls. He's like, I'm going to go in and he got silver in uh, the absolute, didn't he? Isn't that right? I don't remember I don't what know. he got. But I really like him as know, a person ABCC, too. Yeah. I really like him as a person yeah. too. No, me, me as well. Like he's uh, he, he's consistently considered like the nicest person in jujitsu. He's like the Tom Hanks of jujitsu. <laughs> 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 but that's just my favorite. That's that's just that's just the reason that I love him so much is that he he was like I'm gonna upload all this so everyone can watch it and let's see if they can stop me. And Hodger did something kind of similar. He didn't really upload everything. He just didn't what he did when he went to competitions was the same. Like it was, uh, what did, uh, uh, John Danner say, um, to everyone else, it looked like it was the same thing. Like he had level such levels of his jujitsu that it wasn't the same that you or I would do with like the cross collar choke and everything. But to, to the untrained eye, he just did the same thing for like 10 years. And so everyone knew what he was going to do. He was just so good at it. No one could stop it. And like, I like that they both basically did that. They were like, fuck you all. Like, I have the game that I like. I'm way better at it than you. And until you can stop it, I'm just going to keep coming at you and I'm going to win. Yeah. Um, I, I think that, you know, Gordon's never going to really compete in the gi, I don't think. So I think that that's why he just he just automatically dubs Hodger as the greatest because he did great. Sure. Gi, no gi. He had a, a pretty decent career in MMA. I mean, it wasn't top level like yep. the other stuff, but um, but I mean, he did he did great, you know. I, yeah. I, I, I mean, so so just by default, I, because he competed in all three and did well, 
you know, you can't take that away from him. Gordon's never going to compete in a, a gi and do a cross collar from mount. <laughs> It'd be funny if that's all he did. And he did, he did one competition. He went to like IBJJF Worlds, and then he just cross collared everyone just to fuck with. Showed up with an envelope that said cross collar. Yeah, it's, it's like five cross collar jokes. So I was going to cross collar everybody. Going to all the judges, guy. One for you, and one for you, and one for you. Yeah. <laughs> That'd be awesome. I mean, he has the. He, I, I think that he has the showmanship to pull, like, to, to to do something like that, and he has the skill. I think to do it would take him a while. I think to get good enough to be able to pull it off in the gi, but, um, you know, he would he would obviously need to put some practice in, but just to make sure, but. It would be hilarious. I wouldn't put it past him to rate to raise the awareness for the sport and to make some money. It's like <laughs> the brackets come out and he's like goes on Instagram and he's like, Here are my five opponents. I'm going to cross color choke all of them. That'd be so awesome. I'm gonna pull guard, sweep them, and then and then he just does it to every single one of them. So I don't know if you guys watch uh like uh Coach Ben, the jujitsu magazine podcast or whatever. But um, so so basically, Ben, Coach Ben, excuse me, he's this guy and he's like all about betting. So no matter what's coming out, especially like when the who's number one, that's when I kind of found out about it was pretty late, I guess. But he has like the betting odds and where to bet all of these different things like uh, for every jujitsu match coming up. Right. And he's usually pretty good on on calling out what 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 things are and what you should bet on and depending on the spreads and everything else. But uh, if I imagined him calling out the spread on Gordon Ryan, choking out everybody by cross collar. I mean, I think the, the odds like you're like your hundred bucks is going to go so far. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I mean, Jeez. it's just, it would just be so ridiculous. You might be a millionaire. I don't know. I'm fine with that. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. Do either of you have any uh, final thoughts about uh, about life, jujitsu, the podcast, Hickson? <laughs> I feel I've spoken my piece for the day. Um, man, I, I I thought that the 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 podcast was definitely one of the best, and we already covered all that. One of the things that that was brought up by John was is that uh, he said that you shouldn't be physically exhausted by the end of the the training session you should be mentally exhausted and the training session yeah. doesn't end until your brain stops thinking about it and that's very important um, because I think that a lot of people and kind of the way where my background has been, typically is like you do something so many times that your body just knows what to do and you're just kind of on cruise control and no matter what you know you your, your body awareness and everything it just kind of like falls into place and you magically just start winning and I always felt really guilty for for I shouldn't say always but for a very long time I felt very guilty that I was thinking so much I was you know not to the point of hesitation but I was actually thinking at you know, what is it that I'm, what's my, what is my objective? What am I trying to accomplish here? Why, you know, I would feel guilty about that. And it's like, there's this fight going on in my head. And when I went to Gordon's seminar down in, in uh, Portland, one of the first things that he said was, is that the reason that he wins is that he's always thinking the whole time. 
he's he knows that everybody's expecting for their body to do what's whatever's normal and that's why they jump around like idiots and mm -hmm. because he knows his own specific goals and that he's thinking about what what he's trying to do whether it's a push pull reaction and where he's going from that or where their body's going to be or what his goals are in in a braking mechanic to you know counter whatever they're trying to do because he knows exactly what they're what they are going to be doing and having those answers um kind of set me free a little bit and that's when I think that uh, it was much easier for me to roll and I was able to kind of put down that bag of bricks that I was supposed to somehow, everything was supposed to just kind of come together for me somehow in the cosmos. Um, I, I had somebody, I won't drop names here, but I had somebody who, who is, uh, I, I think he's a purple belt now. And he said, Hey, uh, you think that uh, you're, you're just ever in a position and you, you don't know anything and then all of a sudden something that you were taught six years ago, it just pops in your head and then boom, you just know exactly how to get out at that point or your body knows. And I said, no, it doesn't work like that at all for me, like at all. Like I have to know what I'm doing like the whole time and I have to be aware and and con conscious about what, what, I, what I'm actually doing. What am I, what, what are my choices here? What's stopping me from, from moving forward or backward? And, um, I thought that when he said that it just reinforced everything that I kind of already knew from what Gordon had already said and what I've felt throughout the years. I think that's a beautiful yeah. note to end on. Hell yeah, brother. No, I, uh, I agree. Actually, I was really happy that he said that because that's how I've always been with jujitsu. I think my, I've just started thinking more clearly as I learn more. And as, as your body adapts, I think you do that too, as you get more familiar with what your body can do and how it should act and what the other person's body does, you start to be able to think quicker or maybe quicker isn't the right way word, but you, you're able to sift through the things that you know more clearly and choose what it is you want to do. Um, awesome, gentlemen. Well, I think we made it through another one. Thank you we guys. Did. We're at two hours. Thank you guys. Okay, I appreciate multiple, <laughs> multiple technical difficulties. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That was a lot of fun guys. All right. It was. Thank you again, Sean, for coming on. Uh, we truly appreciate it. We'll have you on again. You'll, uh, you'll be our first three Pete guest. I'm sure. <laughs> All right. I, I'd love to be, that'd be awesome. Yeah. And we'll talk some more. We'll have a whole entire podcast and it'll just be called Hickson. <laughs> Why are you going to uh, drop that right now? <laughs> Jeez. Okay. Thanks for listening, I'm everybody. I'm done. <laughs> All right. Take care, everybody. Have a good rest of the night, the morning or the afternoon. Bye-bye.